<clears throat> so, you know, like, like Kirk was saying, you know, it's, it can be awkward, you know, talking about these kind of issues, especially in, in today's world, you know, the, the, when he says the LGBT kind of issues that have cropped up. And, you know, it's, it's funny, like, I feel like it's one of these things that we, it wasn't that we were purposely avoiding talking about this kind of stuff. But it used to not be as important. <laughs> but then in recent times, it's just become more and more relevant to the point where we, we have to talk about these things. Because it's pervading, I mean, I think about it, pretty much every one of us has, whether family, friends, coworkers, it's touching us somehow, that, that lifestyle. And so as believers, knowing how to deal with it. Now, I'm actually not talking a whole lot about it. <laughs> my... my you know, the subject of what I'm talking about today is, is a worldview, a biblical worldview. And see, the biblical worldview, it's important to have that for everything. Um, it, it's, it's, there, there's a million worldviews out there. I was actually looking up how many religions, and I think this is a conservative estimate, but there's at least 4,000 religions in the world. And that's not considering all the, you know, maybe the different denominations, different sub-beliefs, and and also, um, you know, all kinds of other belief systems, secular belief systems. There's, there's probably millions of belief systems in the world, and I'm sure you've encountered many of them. And so what I want to talk about really is just how we can have a biblical worldview. You know, there's pagan worldviews, there's secular worldviews. How can we have a biblical worldview, a worldview that's built on the scripture? Our experience, so our, our worldview is shaped by our experiences, right? You know, whether it be our family, I think that's primary. You know, you, you from, from the moment you're born, you're instilled with a certain worldview that your parents teach you. Or either they teach you overtly or by omission. You know, they just, you just kind of learn it, right? We learn, we learn our worldview. Uh, what else? Uh, we learn it from our friends. That's a huge part of it. Are, are the churches we go to, or even lack thereof, our schools. You know, seven, seven hours a day. A lot of kids spend almost seven hours a day in a public school learning a worldview. Our culture, our, the TV shows we watch, our experiences, everything contributes to our worldview. And I think, you know, the one of the ways I think about it is kind of like we're going through life and it's like a buffet, right? And you're like, I'll take a little bit of this, take a little bit of this. And before long, you have this heaping plate of worldview. And, and it's, it's, it's unlike anyone else's worldview. You know, maybe you get a little, you know, a little Christianity in there. Maybe you get, it's kind of like the, that graph that Kirk was showing last week, you know. We have a little bit of Christianity there, but we also have Maybe a little this, a little that, a little new age, a little who knows what. And we build for ourselves our own worldview. But I want to see what a biblical worldview is. Because that's what's important. Because there's a million things we can believe. But there's only one Bible. So there's a couple, uh, couple things I wanted to mention before we get into the scriptures. Of worldviews that I think are big factors in our, in our world. In our western world. In America particularly. The first idea is one that really cropped up in the 19th century, big in the 20th century. It's materialism. And so I have a definition for materialism up there. It's the, the theory or belief that nothing exists, exists except matter in the movements and modifications. So 
you can you can picture what that that looks like. I've, we've met a lot of people like that, right? Like the only things that exist are what I can hear, smell, feel, touch. Those are the only things that exist. The 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 spiritual, all that kind of stuff. No, that's that's hooey. You can't you can't observe that, so it doesn't exist, right? That's the that's the materialist view. The only things that we can observe are is all that's real. And this world this worldview has pervaded our world, especially here in America. It's, it's taught in all our schools. Um, you know, it, it comes out in certain ways, like if we're talking about the origins of life, it might be like something like the Big Bang or any of the alternative theories. If, if it's the suggesting where humans come from, we might be talking about the theory of evolution. Um, but when we, compare, when we compare those ideas to the Bible, they just don't hold up. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, we read, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So right there, we we see all three mentioned, body, soul, and spirit, all three of those. We are not just bags of flesh. You know, we're not just, you know, uh, a cosmic accident or whatever people try to, we are actually more than that. We are more than just the sum of our parts. We are uh, also spirit. Um, how about the origins of life? We read in Genesis 1. So Genesis tells us a lot. I mean, obviously, at the beginning of Genesis, we see that in the beginning, the heaven, God created the heavens and the earth, right? All the planets, right? We're, we're told that they can't come from maybe a cosmic explosion billions of years ago. There's, you know, I, I don't know all the, the latest theories. I really don't pay attention to it, honestly. But I, I really just want to focus on the word of God. And the word of God says that. And, and it also says in one Genesis one twenty six, it says, God said, let us make man in our image. In our image. So this is, I believe this, it's the Trinity talking here. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, of the, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created, male and female. See, not only has God made us in his image, it makes us totally separate from all the creatures that God, other creatures that God created, but he gave us dominion over them. You know, in our world, with the materialist view, I, I, I see there's some errors that can happen. You know, it, it might seem like a, a little little difference, right? Like, what does it really matter? I believe that God created man. You believe that man kind of evolved over the past, you know, so many million years. We're still here, though, right? So it's just a small thing. We can just agree to disagree. Imagine, though, taken to its logical conclusions, you know, where that could lead, lead us to. If, if we believe that there is no spiritual, this is just a physical, a physical realm that's all that there is, I think that's kind of hopeless myself. Also, it gives me a wrong idea of creation. In, in, in the creation account, it says that God created man, and man has dominion over animals. But what if we don't have that order correctly? What if, what if it is we all evolved from, you know, from the, the same creatures well, then, where do animals and humans match up here? Are, are humans actually better? Are humans actually that much greater? Do we actually have dominion over the creatures? And you see that in our world. A lot of people are confused. They say, well, it's wrong to kill 
a human, that's murder. So wouldn't killing an animal be murder? Because if they're on the same level, that kind of tracks, doesn't it? Eating a human would be cannibalism. <laughs> you see where I'm going with that? You can get really off track really quick. If you, now, do most people take these things to their logical conclusions? Obviously not. Most people don't. But it just shows. What about the opposite? I think the opposite way you could go into nihilism. Nihilism is this idea that everything is, is pointless, that there's no point to anything. You can easily go into nihilism with a view like that. If there is no God, if there is no creation, if this is all just random accidents, then you might say the opposite of what I just said. You might say, well, animals, they're scum. I don't know why they're scum. I just think they're scum. I don't. If animals are scum, then I guess humans are too. And think of the atrocities that could happen if, if we accept that worldview. And it has happened. There is a lot of nihilism in our world. And as nihilism increases, that, that idea that everything's pointless, that there is no point to this life, we see all kinds of terror result from that. Imagine also how this worldview, a materialist worldview, imagine how that might influence our view of death. To an unbeliever or to someone who doesn't believe in an afterlife, anything like that, think about what death means to them. Death is finality. It is, it is the end, complete end. It's despair. That's what it is. It's devastating. In 1 Thessalonians, though, we read something about how the believer should respond to death. And it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that's dead, those you may not, uh, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For, we, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So, once again, you know, you can see how a Christian sees, sees death much differently than an unbeliever. A Christian sees death, and yes, we grieve. Even Jesus grieved. Remember that? When, when his friend Lazarus died, and I don't even understand that scripture, honestly. It says that, you know, Lazarus was dead, and Jesus, what? Jesus wept. And I, I always wonder about that. Didn't Jesus know he was going to be raised real momentarily? But even Jesus wept. So, so also, we weep, right, when, when our loved ones die. It's sad. Even if we know that we're going to see him again, it's sad. But it's not devastating in the same way as an unbeliever who loses their loved one forever who has no hope of ever seeing that loved one again. That's devastating. So right there, I, I, I described the materialist worldview. Like I said, you know, that was a, a worldview that was really big in the 20th century, and it's still, it's still very big now. But now we're having kind of a competing worldview that's coming into our Western culture. Our, this is not exhaustive by any stretch. There's millions, like I said, there's millions of worldviews. I'm just talking about a couple that are very common in our in our uh, world right now. So the second one I wanted to say before we get into our scriptures is the idea of postmodernism. So postmodernism also developed kind of in the 20th century, but it's really getting a foothold now. For a long time, it was like mostly in universities, but now it's creeping out into the real world. 
and it's going everywhere. And we all see it. You may not know the, the term postmodernism. It's kind of a big word. I'm not trying to be heady about this. I just, it's, it's the best word for it. Postmodernism is essentially a very skeptical look at objective truth and anything that can be known for certain. So objective truth is like concrete truth, right? Like that chair is right there. That's objective truth. And so a postmodernist might say, well, do you know that chair is really there? How do you know that chair is really there, right? That's postmodernism. It might seem kind of goofy, and it is. It's super goofy. It might seem kind of goofy, but it's everywhere. You might think, well, that's a fringe idea. No, it's not. It's becoming very mainstream. And if you haven't seen it, you'll start to see it everywhere. Um, so yeah, like I said, they might say, what is truth? Questions like that. Questioning just basic facts that we all hold to be true. Um, so while postmodernism, while postmodernism, postmodernism seems to contrast materialism, it seems that its effects are equally, if not much more, and I would, I would argue much more devastating. By criticizing the idea of concrete truth, postmodernism enables people to, to take extreme worldviews and without accountability. So what do I mean by that? So let's look at an example. So let's contrast materialism with postmodernism. A materialist, someone who believes that all that exists is matter, right? A materialist might say, I think the earth is flat. And you know what everyone else would say? No, it's round, you dummy. And they'll give all kinds of proof, and the guy would be like, okay, yeah, I guess it is, right? Because that's concrete truth. There is objective reality that the earth is actually round. A postmodernist, you would say, would say, the earth is flat. And you'd say, no, it's not, you dummy. It's round. And they'd say, well, that's your truth. That's your truth. That's not my truth. I don't believe that. To me, it's flat. Now, that's, I don't think that's a common postmodern belief. I'm, 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 I'm taking it to its extreme. Most, most of the time when you hear postmodernism come out, it comes out um, with other things, things that they try to make subjective. Um, we see that, I mean, the big one is transgenderism. That's a huge one we see everywhere, right? And, and to anyone from 10 years ago and beyond, we look at that and like, well, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? You think that you know, a man can just be a woman and a woman can just become a man. We might have just got you know, taken off of YouTube for that. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? We can just trade. But, but this is the kind of ideas that come from postmodernism. It's the, it's the, it's the constant uh, criticism of any objective reality or any concrete truth. There no longer is that. And so we really can say anything we want, and we can make that true just by saying it's true. But it's not true. And, and as people of the Bible, we cannot go along with this kind of stuff. We have to rely on something concrete. And that's where we, we, we believe that the Bible is concrete. We've chosen to put our faith in the word of God as our source of truth. The other one is, is non-binaryism. It's, it's very related to the transgenderism, but it's, it's almost even, even stranger because it's like saying, well, there's this gender binary. We've never called it that until a few years ago because we didn't need to know that there's a man and a woman. It just existed. But now we, we say there's this, this gender binary, and it's kinda, that's kind of outdated. Now there's like, I, I looked up today. I, could, I couldn't tell. There's, some people say 72 genders. I've seen 112 genders. I don't know how many genders there are now. 
But it, it's ridiculous how many there are. And it keeps growing, I think, every day. This, this idea that I'm not on the gender binary. I'm not man or woman. I'm something else completely. See, this is what happens when we allow subjectivity, when we allow this idea of postmodernism to kind of take over. And, and we, don't, um, we don't look at things through the lens of what is truth. So that's, that's enough talking about that. <laughs> These are just a couple of, of examples of many thousands, if not millions, of ideas, like I said, that people espouse. You know, my hope is that as the church, we would reject all of these ideas. Anything that's not found in the Word of God, that we would reject it and make the Word of God our source of, of truth. And the thing is, we can't change what we've been influenced by. You might think, well, I, you know, I, I was raised in a secular home. I was raised with certain beliefs. I, I can't help what I was exposed to. And that's true. You can't, but you, you can't help what you're exposed to, but you can repent at the Word of the Lord. And we have an example of that with Apostle Paul. We'll look at him, and we'll read a little bit about what happened um, with Saul converting. Because Saul had a very, I don't know if you remember, this is Apostle Paul, also known as Saul. He, he had a very different worldview before he was a Christian. He had a very different view of life and, and uh, what constituted morality and, and, and what constituted his salvation, all that. And so we'll read this in uh, Acts 9. It says, But Saul, is that too small? That is very small. I'm sorry. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christians, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. One little aside, I, I, I was reading this and I just kind of thought it was interesting how, you know, Saul, it says that he, for three days, he neither ate nor drank. And then if you read, I, I didn't include all the scripture, but what ends up happening, God sends this man named Ananias to go visit Paul uh, I don't know if, if, if part, of, part of it was to kind of tell Paul the, the gospel more accurately. I don't know exactly what his mission was. But one of the things he did, he, was, he baptized Paul. But, you know, Paul didn't eat or drink for three days. And the first thing they did was baptize him. And then they got food. I thought that was kind of interesting. They weren't like, hey, let's wait till food and, and then baptize you. But here we see that Paul gave his heart to the Lord. You know, he, he had this dramatic experience on the road to Damascus. In fact, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a pretty common term for people to say, you know, what's your road to Damascus moment? In other words, what's your, what's your story of conversion? Where did you, where did you, you know, get, get confronted by the truth of God's word and change your mind? And just to see, you know, how different this new Christian life was for Paul. Let's, let's look at Philippians 3, 4. This is Paul's you know, autobi autobiographical account of what it was like. 
And Paul's talking about himself. He said, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then listen to this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You know, you think about these these attributes about him that he just mentioned, that constitutes his worldview. Circumcised on the eighth day. That's a worldview. He was of the people of Israel. He thought, man, I'm, I'm God's chosen people. Of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He took pride in that. He was a Pharisee. There was a, the, the, the party, the religious party that he was affiliated with. He was a persecutor of the church. That was a badge of honor to him at the time. And as far as righteousness, he was blameless. These are the things that he held on to as the, the most important things in his life. But he was confronted on the road, and a bright light shined on him, and he went blind, and he realized, wow, I was wrong about it all. And now, or at least when he wrote this, he said, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. That's, how, that's the attitude we need to have. You know, you might think, well, I've been taught something my whole life. I believe this my whole life. There's no change in it now, you know. Like, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks kind of thing. I'm, I'm just set in my ways. Well, no, you can. Paul, if, if anyone was set in his ways, that was Paul. The Hebrew of Hebrews. That's who he was. And he, he, even he was able to, to reject the lies that he had been uh, grown up with and accept the truth of Jesus Christ. So now we're going to look at uh, a couple other men in the Bible. Oh, you know what? No, I had another point I was going to make. Yeah. No, I made that point. Never mind. Let's go to Solomon. Oh, you you guys wish you knew what my comment was, don't you? It's a little nugget for me. So let's go to Solomon. So Solomon was raised, so I'm just going to kind of go through the life of Solomon. I have two kings that I want to kind of go through the life of. First, the king Solomon, and then the king Josiah. And we're going to kind of look at both of their lives, their worldviews, how they were influenced. And so look for it when we're going through this. I'm not really going to read a whole lot of scripture about them. We're just going to kind of look at their their life in general. Um, if you don't know about their life, read about it. I, I, I put I, I, Some of these have uh, scripture quotations so you, you know where to look up in, in 2 Kings and 1 Kings as well. But we'll first look at Solomon. So Solomon was raised in a home that held to a, I say, a more biblical view. You know, what was Solomon's worldview perfect? <laughs> no. I mean, obviously, even at the time, this is, you know, about a thousand years before Christ, you know, the idea of uh, the Messiah was, you know, they had a very simple understanding of that. There, there was a lot they, they didn't know. And, and there was definitely ways that his father, David, um, was not perfect, to say the least, right? But his father, David, the king, also we read in the Bible that he was a man after God's heart, right? He was one of the greatest men who've ever lived. And so he had a great role model, role model and a father. Not to say he was perfect, but relatively speaking, he had a biblical upbringing, biblical worldview. Second slide, Solomon had a heart 
for the Lord uh, from the very beginning. You know, if we read, I think it was in 1 Kings, maybe chapter 2 or 3, we'll read about um, how God, when Solomon became king after David died, God basically uh, said, hey, ask, ask from me what you will. You know, ask for me anything you want. Almost giving him a blank check. It's kind of, kind of cool. And Solomon, if you remember the story, he said, hey, I want wisdom. And, and I think God was kind of, I mean, obviously God knew what he was going to say, but I think God was just very pleased with what he said. And God's like, wow, that's amazing. I, I gave you this blank check, and you wrote down wisdom. <clears throat> and so God said, okay, I'll give you wisdom. But I'm also going to give you the things you didn't ask for, the riches, the women, all Well, maybe not the women. That's another thing. I'll give you the riches, the, the, you know, the, everything that you didn't ask for, all the great things that you should have as a king. I, I will, and I'll give you, if you obey me, I'll give you long years. That's what God told him. So next slide. God gave Israel a command. So we read in, in Deuteronomy 7, 3, God told, this was to Moses, but it was for all of Israel of all time, do not intermarry with foreign women. It's very, very important that they didn't intermarry with foreign women. Why? Because God knew that if they did, their hearts would be turned from the Lord. Next slide. Solomon, he did marry foreign women. How unfortunate. It was, you know, it was his biggest downfall. A man with such wisdom, you see at the beginning of his reign, how how much he loved the Lord and, and wanted good things. But what happened, he... He did the very thing that God told him not to do. He married foreign women. And we read this in 1 Kings 11. It says, And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives, these are the foreign ones, turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. This is such a tragic story of Solomon. And it shows how easily his his worldview was influenced, right? He started out with, like I said, a, a relatively biblical worldview, love for God. But the bad influences of this world, primarily his foreign wives, turned him away from the Lord. You know, that represents, that could represent a lot of things. It could represent friends who turn your heart away from the Lord, acquaintances, different people, even family members who turn your heart away from the Lord. This is a guy who started strong, but, but failed before he reached the end. Now let's contrast that with another story of a man named Josiah. He actually started his reign as a boy. And Josiah, so the first slide, Josiah was a king who grew up in Judah. So this is, you know, Israel and, and Judah were one, one country, a united kingdom, and then they split apart after, after Solomon, after his son um, was king. And so by this point, there are two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and uh, Josiah was, had become king because his father had passed away when he was eight years old. His father was Amon, who was an evil king. His grandfather, so Amon's father, and Josiah's grandfather, was Manasseh, also an evil king. 
You can read about those. I, I put the, the scripture references up there. And then his great-grandfather, you've probably heard of him, a man named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was, I didn't put what Hezekiah was because it was kind of a complicated story. Hezekiah started out as a pretty good king, kind of, kind of like Solomon. Started out great and failed at the end. But this was, this was his lineage. This was Josiah's lineage. Hezekiah, one of the things he was famous for was getting rid of, uh, you know, like the idols from, from Judah. He cast them out. And, uh, and it says that um, Manasseh, so one generation later, after Hezekiah got rid of all these idols, Manasseh came and brought back the high places that his father had destroyed. <laughs> so you see, they, they finally got rid of these idols, and one generation later, nope, let's put them back up. Let's go back to worshiping those false gods. This is a backstory of Josiah, of, of how he was raised. So we see that Josiah was raised in a pagan culture that was saturated with idolatry. I was kind of thinking, when I was reading this, it kind of reminded me um, kind of our, our, our culture here in America. You know, just a few generations ago, I was talking, oh, I was talking to my grandma, and I asked my dad about it, too, because I was just kind of curious what their upbringing was like in school. And they both said, oh, yeah, we had prayer in school, and, and uh, I think my grandma at least had Bible in school. And I was I, I kind of knew that, but I was also kind of like, wow, that's, it's just hard for me to fathom a time when there was prayer and Bible in schools. You know, I, I've only gone to Christian schools and homeschool pretty much. Um, so I guess I had that. But so many people I know, you know, it was public schools. I, can you imagine prayer in schools today? It seems so foreign. The The... And, and we could have a big debate over whether America was a Christian nation or not. That's, that's beside the point. But at least did we stick to godly morality in previous generations? For sure. Did we have a culture of, um, that was generally united around morality and, and, and godly principles? Yes, we did. But slowly that's eroded, just like in, in leading up to Joshua's time. And so by the time Joshua was around, he didn't hear about it. You know, you think kids today, they go through 12 grades of school. And you could go through 12 whole grades without ever hearing the name of the Lord or the gospel. And here's Josiah. He went through the first eight years of his life, never, I imagine, hearing anything about God. If anything, he heard about a lot of false gods. Didn't know anything about the Lord. And then he won another, as king, he won another, what is it, uh, 18 years before he ever heard the word of the Lord. He was 26. I think that's the next slide. Yeah. He was 26 years old when he finally heard the word of the Lord. Hilkiah, his high priest, um, I forget, he went into some room and he went, and thus flew. That's how I imagine it, at least. And then he coughed because the dust, it was old dust. <laughs> But, but he, brought the, he brought the Bible, you know, the book of the law. He brought it to Josiah. And Josiah's like, what is this? I've never heard this before. And, and Josiah repented at the word of the Lord. And he changed his worldview. And he even, uh, even had that, the, the scriptures read to the, uh, to the people. And so we, I'll just read the end of the story here. It's uh, 2 Kings 23, verse 3. 
And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and with all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that Hilkiah the priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold, or I'm sorry, and the, and the king commanded Hilkiah, the, priest, the high priest, and I'm having trouble reading today, and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for, for Asherah and for the, the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the field of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And it keeps going on. I mean, it's paragraphs and paragraphs of all the things Josiah did in his reforms. Josiah fully changed. He wasn't just like his great-grandfather. He was like, yeah, let's get rid of some of this stuff. No, he's, he's all about it. He's like, no, we're getting rid of every shred. They're not going to know, except for this book that we're going to write. They're not going to even know we ever had this stuff. It's going to be obliterated. And see, that's what, that's what our hearts need to be with this stuff. We need to have a heart like Josiah that when we hear the word of the Lord, that we would say, yeah, all that junk, all that junk I've been hearing for the last 26 years that I was raised with. I mean, that's all he knew. You got to think, it's not like he kind of heard the gospel his whole life. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds kind of good. No, 26 years, he never, that wasn't something proclaimed. That wasn't something he knew about. He knew a lot more about other gods. It wasn't something he was even necessarily comfortable with. I mean, think about how uncomfortable it is sometimes when you hear the word of the Lord. It's like, ugh, that's not really something I want to change. But yet, he was all about that. He changed his worldview just like that. So which king would you want to be like? Do you want to be like Solomon, who knew the truth, but had his heart turned away from the Lord? Or do you want to be like Josiah, who didn't know the Lord, but repented and accepted the ways of God? So how do we get a biblical worldview? So we've talked about some false worldviews. We've talked about how our worldviews can be slayed. But how do we get a biblical worldview? First thing, spend some time in the Word. We read in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. You know, the word of God changes our hearts. I know I, I read it all the time, and, and there will be things I read, and it's like, oh, wow, I've read this same scripture 20 times. I've never saw that before. And it changes me because I'm faced with the option. Either I'm going to have to tweak God's word. I'm going to say, well, I don't think he meant that. I'm going to rewrite this in my own words. Either I have to do that, which unfortunately so many churches and even pastors do that. Or I have to say, wow, I think my way was wrong. I think the last 26 years I've believed something false. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tweak my ways, right? I'm going to tweak what I'm doing. If we immerse ourselves in God's word, it will renew our minds. We read that in Romans 12 verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing, uh, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is acceptable and perfect. Jo- Josiah renewed his mind when he heard the word of the Lord. Solomon renewed his mind when he heard the word of his wife's gods. Wife's gods. He, 
he, he, he transformed in a bad way, right? So what are we renewing our mind with, good or evil? We're surrounded by wickedness and godliness. What are we, what are we renewing our mind with? You know, we're constantly being told lies that unborn babies are not actually babies, right? Just a clump of cells. We're surrounded by propaganda that say men can be women and women can be men. We talked about that earlier. Our culture is quickly becoming one that calls good evil and evil good. And it can be confusing to know what's right and wrong. And that's why we need to be grounded in a biblical worldview. Our Bibles are like an anchor that keep us from drifting when the waves come around and toss us around. You know, my buddy has a boat. And sometimes in the summer we'll go out, you know, to Berlin or something. And we'll go out in the middle of the lake and, and just park it. But a, a boat's not like a car where you can just put it and pee. <laughs> and it stays there. You know, we got to let out our anchor. And it, it's kind of cool because, you know, you feel, you feel the waves pushing you back and forth, here and there. But you know that you're going to stay where you're set. You're going to stay right over that anchor. You're not going to be moving too far. And, and that's what our, our Bibles are. They're, those Bibles are our anchors. They're, you know, to, to keep us where we're supposed to be. Without that, we can go wherever the waves take us. And so, you know, you might have been in the 90s, maybe you're the one where the, the materialist took over. It's like, whoa. And then, you know, 2010 hit, 20, maybe 2013, 14, and another wind blew you, and that postmodernism just kind of took you with it. And what's the next wave coming at you from the front? What's that next wave? You don't know, and I don't know. I don't know what the next wave's going to be. It doesn't matter what the next wave's going to be. If you ground yourself in the word of God, it doesn't matter what that next wave's going to be. You have everything you need for life and godliness.